We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Um, so, today on Floodcast, we have a very special guest. Uh, we're joined by Kia Milburn. Um, Kia is the author of the book Generation Left, the host of Navarra Media podcast ACFM, and a lecturer in political economy and organisation. And he's joining us today uh, to talk about generational politics. So, Kia, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to, to discuss this stuff. Great. Um, so, before we kick off the discussion proper, um, Matt, I think you're just going to take us briefly through some of the generational politics stuff, particularly as it applies um, in Australia, and explain kind of why this is such an interesting and important historical phenomenon. So take it away, Matt. Yeah, so the reason why this is so interesting me, um, it's kind of always been thought, there's always been this idea that like the young are more progressive and the older more conservative. Um, And we've always kind of thought we could expect a, like this has been an idea in politics in like western politics for a very long time but until now it's never really been true at least in terms of uh voting behavior so uh yeah there were a lot of like this kind of got started with the hippies and the new left of the 60s i think but they were never in terms of who was actually voting for who um it turned out that actually young people ended up coming out for richard nixon young people i think more young people voted for Thatcher and Reagan than old people. So the split that we're seeing now uh, in terms of voting behavior and more general political terms between the young and the old, where the young are overwhelmingly voting for left-wing parties, uh, in some cases, very radical left-wing political parties, and then the older overwhelmingly voting for right-wing political parties, that has never been as pronounced as it currently is, I believe. Um, it's certainly like the uh, level of the the distance between them has never been as pronounced. So I'm looking here at a graph of uh, voting behavior in the last Australian federal election in 2019. And if you look at voters over the age of 65, the coalition get about 60% of the vote. If you look at voters under the age of 25, the coalition are on 15% of the vote, which is an incredible number for the governing party. Like, and I'm looking at this, so yeah, voters under the age of 25, uh, the coalition gets 15% of the vote, Labour gets 45% of the vote, and then the Greens get about 40% of the vote. And the Greens are a party that's like only viable in like one or maybe two seats in the country. The Greens are like on 10% of the vote. The Greens have one member of parliament. They're very much a minor party in Australian politics. The fact that they're getting 40% of the vote of this one demographic, and that's like well over double what the governing party is getting, it shows that something very strange is happening um, in terms of what young people are doing, where they're at, why they're so kind of wildly distinct from what the average person in this country is doing and what the average voter is doing. And it indicates to me that, yeah, there's, this is something that's genuinely new. 
um, this forming of politics of political coalitions based around age. Um, it's something that we've never seen in our politics, I think, ever before. It's something that we don't really have a set of ideas to understand. Like, it's something that there's no kind of established political theory that says, like, this is why this will happen. There's a certain amount of kind of folk wisdom. So there's a certain amount of like, oh, like millennials are, you know, they're like, of course they're more progressive or of course young people love new ideas. Or of course, like you might think, of course, like the young will always do that. But then if you kind of look at the history of it, you say, actually, no, like clearly something's changed. Like clearly this is not just an extension of existing trends. Clearly this is something really distinct from any political form that's gone before. And it's also, I don't think, going away anytime soon. And it, as much as anything else is, I think, going to be the thing that really reshapes our politics going on. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to get Kier on, and I wanted to start by asking him a bit about why he thinks this uh, this is happening, why he thinks this kind of new political division is emerging. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, to get the to get those stats from Australia, because I, I knew that the, the general pattern, but that's that's really distinct. Um, uh, so you know, in in the UK, it, it, you get the, you get much more stark. You know that 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 division is even more stark. <clears throat> you know, in the in the twenty seventeen general election, um, that there was just this huge division between you know the youngest cohort and the oldest cohort, the over sixty fives, the Conservatives leading like by something like forty percent amongst the over sixty fives. And like for every every ten years older a, a voter was from eighteen, they were nine percent more likely to vote for the Conservatives and less likely to vote for the Labour Party. In that election in particular, it really divided into a two party sort of election to large large larger degree than it before. Very very similar in the US, but like it's got a slightly different inflection in the US. So the, the, the this sort of like this 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 sort of like almost perfect graph, where the older you are, the more right wing you seem to be voting. You know that is most clearly seen in the U.S. when Bernie Sanders is um, in in a you know trying to get the Democratic nomination against first Hillary Clinton and then Joe Biden. The the, the latest one is a little bit disrupted because of the other candidates in in the race, but there's basically just exactly the same division where the, you know the, so the voters went for Cl for Clinton in, in the over 65s and went for Biden over 65s massively, and the young went left. And in fact, there was a poll out. A couple of weeks ago in the US, <clears throat> saying amongst an under forty, socialism is as <clears throat> sorry, for socialism is as it's got the same level of popularity as capitalism. So about fifty fifty amongst under forties. Which, if you know about the US, which has never had a socialist party, that's it's just an amazing thing. It's really distinct, and you know, the, it's actually a very recent phenomenon. This particular inflection of a turn to the left so there has been a, a longer term trend for younger people to adopt sort of more what might be termed socially liberal views um, but before about 2011 that, that often was paired with well, with with uh, financially conservative views i.e. more 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 skepticism towards state action or whatever i know these things don't map perfectly and that that really has taken a massive change that latter, you know, the, the sort of like a shift of the youth uh, towards sort of left economic sort of solutions, if you like, that has taken place on, a, on a, not universally, but on an international level over the last sort of five years. Like really, Can really I... suddenly. 
Yeah, yeah, come in. Yeah, can I ask, do you know anything about um, like France or Germany or countries outside the Anglosphere? <coughs> the same pattern holds there? Yeah, I mean, so um, it's much less clear in, in those two countries and it take, it probably takes a slightly different form. Um, and so one, one of the things that it needs in order to, to be expressed, I think, or for it to be to be visible in sort of like the data, the general election data, is a left political alternative, right? Um, and that might not be the case in the US and so in, in Australia, etc. But, you know, it, perhaps it takes place via the Greens in, in, in Australia rather than a sort of distinct left uh, uh, candidate or something. And in, in, in Germany, for instance, it seems to be the Green Party who has been the beneficiaries of this sort of youth turn left and the Green Party in the in Germany is um, fairly neoliberal is not particularly left uh, it's one of the more right-wing green parties uh, in France um, uh, is you know that the, the, there's a total possibility for this sort of like disgruntlement amongst the youth to go towards the far right and you that is what you see in countries such as Poland for instance and Hungary where where the, the youth folk um, uh, in lots of circumstances is you know the youth are voting for the far right in the same sorts of numbers as older generations although that changed uh, that changed recently and in fact there's a real generate um sorry there's a real uh uh distinction between um uh young women and young men in in poland so young women in fact young women around the whole world are the most radically left cohort uh, that, that seems to be a universal thing <laughs> and it's the young men who may be turned to the, to the right etc um so, so the, i think part of the reason it's clearest in the uk in the us is because of the you know the electoral system means that um what happened it, there's real parallel stories where in, in the uk in the us where the left tried to take over you know one of the major parties caught jeremy corbyn in the uk bernie sanders in the us and that became a that meant that this could be expressed really clearly, basically. And, you know, when you express something, it massifies um, uh, and, uh, and and accelerates. So I, you know, I also think there's another reason why the UK and the US show it most clearly. And I think that's part of the, you know, that that gets us onto the answer of, like, why this might be happening. And, and there's a few reasons why it might be happening. Um, uh, one of them is because uh, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence. Let's put it this way. I don't think it's a coincidence. That, don't think it's a coincidence. Let's put it this way. I don't think it's a coincidence that two of the countries are the most, and therefore where asset ownership um, is both really important part of the economy and asset ownership is is absolutely divided in a really dramatic way along along generational lines. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that those are the two countries in which this 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 trend is uh, most clearly displayed. Yeah, yeah, it's I mean, yeah, it's good that you sort of said that about asset ownership because is that is one of the points I'm going to touch on here. It's interesting to me as well to note that first that it's it's not just a matter of like everyone under 40 is a socialist now because it manifests itself very differently in very different places. Um of course in some places young men kind of end up turning to the right. Yeah, I've heard that there's a in Poland, a really pronounced gender split. Um, and then it seems like in some cases where there's a, a viable Greens party as opposed to a viable uh, Social Democratic party, that kind of has a difference in how it expresses it as well. So I've got, I don't know enough about kind of the different Greens parties in Europe, but 
I think it's kind of important to take this into account because I think we get very kind of Corbin and Sanders, oh, like Sanders and Corbin, that's the story because they were these two parallel expressions of this kind of emerging uh, radical youth movement in two countries. And if, like me, you only speak English, you kind of only see stuff from these major countries. Um, but coming at it from Australia, where, you know, we're kind of members of the Green Party um, and that has that there hasn't been this kind of um, radical moment within the existing Labour Party because instead that role kind of gets taken up by the Green Party and then the Green Party um, and again I'm kind of looking at the stats here the Green Party gets something like 40% of like under 25s and then they lose 10% of the they lose 10% every time you go up so they're on two percent of like the oldest demographic they're almost entirely a youth party in that sense and so i think it's kind of important to grasp that this is not just like the expression of a particular political viewpoint or it's not just like young people around the world kind of adopting the same perspectives i think as you said kia it actually used to be the case that these kind of social liberalism was married to a a more fiscally conservative maybe or probably libertarian kind of uh, marketist stuff and that's still something you see quite regularly it seems like the ideas in play on the kind of new uh, radical youth demographic are often quite confused in some to some extent and I think this is kind of the case in America as well where you look at these uh, polls that show that socialism is as popular as capitalism and then I always wonder what do they mean when they say socialism and I think it's become quite an all-purpose um, thing like a kind of catch-all term that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people um, but yeah having said that I do want to talk about this idea of um, the role that assets play in this um i think that as you know i think there's a new book coming out soon called the asset economy from some people at the university of sydney which talks about this idea of um yeah what you what happens when you get a highly financialized economy and all of the wealth kind of being concentrated into the hands of not just a few people but particularly older people so yeah if you can talk us through what that is maybe that'd be great yeah just to, just to finish off the last uh, conversation uh, about so so before corbynism started there was something in the uk called the green surge like forty thousand young people joined the green party and it's this thing of like there's disgruntlement and, and it's and and i think a nascent politics which is looking for expression somewhere and that takes you know different forms depending on the political opportunity structures of particular countries etc yeah i was going to say before when you were talking about that really it seems like what's at issue here is a rejection of the status quo um, first and foremost, and that takes various political um, expressions uh, partially dependent on what's, e what's even available, like what channels there are to, f to funnel that dissatisfaction. Um, so yeah, but I think you're right not to maybe categorise it easily as one p political opinion or the other. Um, but sorry, Kia, go on. <laughs> No, but I, I do think there's a direction, there's a sort of logic and a direction to the, <clears throat> to the political development we're seeing, 
which is to do with, you know, the life experiences of young people and the fact that they're not expressed in, in, in mainstream politics most of the time. And, and I think that does get us onto like the, the asset economy. I think there's, I think there is a variety of things though. There's a right variety of elements of the way, or, 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 or there's a variety of elements of the, of the way young people live, which is, has some sort of distinction to the way older people live. I think that's to do with the types of work young people tend to do. And more, more towards things such as immaterial labour, uh, if you if you know that sort of literature, and caring labour, you know that that, that that those sorts of you know service work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But one of the other really big, big and important um, aspects of that is asset ownership, and it you know so one way into that is um, is is Thomas Piketty's work. So Thomas Piketty in two thousand and fourteen released this book called Capital in the Twenty First Century, and this this is like big relatively boring statistical analysis actually it's quite interesting but um it, you know it's like a, it's like an exhaustively rigorous look at at, at, at at this huge database that they put together and like the underlying finding they get is that um they find that outside one particular period hist- historical period of capitalism that returns on returns to capital so returns to asset ownership basically um is greater than than the growth of incomes and productions or the growth of the underlying economy so that, that so returns on uh, uh, to, to to capital the returns to asset ownership are greater than the growth right so that's got a couple of implications so the one period when that isn't the case is he's he dates it from like the first world war up until you know the, the late 1970s but most of the time we think about that as the as a sort of post-war sort of economy the sort of like post-war welfare capitalism some people talk about it as a keynesian sort of capitalism etc he says outside that period you get this tendency in capitalism and that that produces like really strong trends that you that you will see one one of those trends is um wealth concentration right like you know if if you if you if you got if you get returns to asset ownership perhaps through, through like you know ownership of assets and so rents of various kinds like all of that money is going one way you know what i mean um whereas you know in an employment relationship you get money going both ways although it ends up um to those who own the uh, who own the capital so you you get like wealth centralization of of wealth and that's what you see at the moment you know absolutely unprecedented levels of of material inequality almost unprecedented what you also get is that um you know just naturally from that tendency that um f- like the financial sector and asset the asset ownership or the other you know the business models based on 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 rents that accrue from asset ownership they will just naturally form a larger and larger part of the economy uh, and so that's part of what you see in in you know you see a movement a, a, a move of direction uh, towards economies becoming financialized you know the, that 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 path started in the uk and the us you know under sort of like reagan and thatcher for instance and so we're, we're further along that that line uh, of development to some degree and so partly i think you know the sort of generational gap it's almost like a transitional effect it's a transitional effect from one form of economy you know the sort of post-war welfare economy uh, uh, to a sort of highly financialized economy because what one of the ways that plays out is so in the UK is the perfect example where you have a very high level of of um, state-owned housing, 
right? A housing provided by the state that gets sold off. The, you know, people get the right to buy that at like 40% of market value in the mid-1980s. And so that's basically just, a, you know, it's basically a gift of collective wealth, a privatization of collective wealth, which goes to like one generation. It's, that sparks, you know, as well as the the, the, uh, uh, the deregulation of finance, I'm trying to say, that takes place also in the UK from 1986 onwards. You know, you get through the 90s, you get this sort of like sort of asset based, debt based economic growth, which comes to a crash in 2008 basically and i think that's that's the other thing we need to sort of think about uh so so that's just like you know that is a, a level of asset increase in 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 the increase in asset wealth that falls to perhaps one or one and a half generations right um and it and you know 2008 is the point at which you know, that 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 entry into that into that asset ownership and therefore you know increased wealth through asset ownership that gets cut off to young people and i think that you know i said when i started talking about this that this it's a very strange thing you know when you have an when you have a phenomena such as you know a generational split in politics that that takes place over many countries and starts more or less the same time in many countries well you need a sudden event which happens on an international scale to ex to explain it and like 2008 is like the really good explainer for that um because because at that point you know banks change their lending regulations the price of home ownership etc is way beyond that uh, and so basically housing how like being able to afford a, a mortgage from average wages without some sort of inheritance or help from your parents becomes basically impossible right it's just that it just becomes impossible because the multiples that banks are allowed to lend in the UK it's like 4.5% of salary you know, average house uh, uh, prices are, are up to sort of like nine, ten percent of salary. That means you can't even, you know, you know, you can't get a mortgage. It's, it's really, really difficult to get a mortgage, particularly in cities where young people live. You know, I think that's one of the explanations you can give to this to this this split is that, um, uh, you know, asset ownership and the wealth that derives from that, you know, almost by proxy fell to uh to one generation and so so that one of the one of the significant parts of this right is that um it means that it, it, uh, because wages have also been stagnant or stagnated in, in in countries such as the us and the uk you know for like 30 40 years in, in real terms uh what you get is um uh, you know wages or income from work is less and less able to provide the sort of like stable sort of what you what some people might call a middle class lifestyle, and in fact, the, for young people now, their income that they can earn from work will play much less of a role in determining the sort of life that they live than access to asset ownership through inheritance from family members, or, or, or perhaps even life gifts, so gifts from parents at particular points at, at time. Um, like that that's one that's one sort of trend which basically undermines any notion of meritocracy you know you cannot have any idea of meritocracy and that inequalities present inequalities are deserved when it basically your life chances are decided by the lack of birth i mean that just it's just not a sustainable story and i think that's part of one of the sort of like what you might call a subjective crisis that's going on amongst young people but i say it's a transitional stage and i think it probably is a transitional stage because 
overriding that like that that generational wealth that went that what now resides of older people there's another dynamic that goes on in that economy and that's a centralization of wealth and that will peel off the bottom layers of 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 asset ownership uh, primarily i think through basically paying through elder care through equity withdrawal so like selling your house and then you that money gets used up through to pay for elder care that's one of the big ways in which this will you know it will the the, the proportion of the population that own assets will not just pass neatly from one generation to another it will it will narrow really really substantially there's all sorts of other other uh, other results of this form of an economy as well and one of them is like what what, what you call secular stagnation just very very low rates of growth um you know I'd also argue sort of cultural stagnation as well, because, you know, the room for manoeuvre, the room for freedom. Yeah, definitely. It, you know, for young people, it's just massively cut, etc. It's something that, yeah, like, because the further we get away from the post-war bubble, um, the more clear it kind of becomes. I think that that was very much a temporary phase in the history of capitalism that we mistook for a permanent state of affairs. And I think what's kind of conspicuous about now in some sense it almost seems like we're returning to even a a 19th century robber barons kind of stage of capitalism and almost like yeah like a an almost pre-modern level of wealth inequality but then what's kind of makes that different is that we're still very much coming off the back of the post-war bubble this very odd kind of brief uh, Keynesian uh, period where it actually seems to work, at least for people in like developed countries, um, and where the government actually did take a very kind of heavy hand in trying to guarantee full employment for people and things like that. And that kind of worked sufficiently well, and it kind of became people's understanding of like, oh, that's what capitalism is. Like, that's just what it's you know that's oh it's actually it's fine like it's good it actually like the free market does provide for everyone look and we've been kind of going into more and more debt like uh, my understanding is that you only really start to get these like massive national debts under reagan and like thatcher and those people like reagan started really going into debt for the first time because he cut taxes and couldn't get spending down as much as he wanted as things like that and I think that Right to Buy is a really good example of this, where we've kind of built up all of this wealth over, you know, the kind of period of the post-war bubble, and then just kind of that got sold off to one particular generation of people. We're kind of just burning through those stockpiles, and now we're coming to the end of it. And it is, yeah, I think a lot about that kind of cultural stagnation as well. Like, it is... I spent a lot of time kind of watching movies from the 70s and like kind of like read older stuff and it's difficult to get your head around just the kind of like subtle difference that this made in almost every aspect of life. Um, and it is, seems very conspicuous now that, yeah, like we don't have the kind of development in the arts and the, you know, film or literature or whatever that we could have because there's still that demographic of people who've kind of, um, you know, they got all the wealth, they, you know, they got the right to buy, they sort of had all those assets and they're still in those positions. Like, 
ultimately when we talk about baby boomers like that is the people who are around for all that the people who were like there in the 80s for the neoliberal turn yeah i think about this a lot too in terms of cultural stagnation and i think i might have made this point on the show before but something that's so striking to me over the last 10 years or so is that almost every like big movie or tv show that comes out as a remake of something that was done uh back in you know the 70s 80s 90s um so yeah i'm not totally sure how to pass that but it certainly seems like there isn't a lot of intellectual or artistic creativity among our generation for whatever reason um but another thing i wanted to kind of ask you about here was this I mean, I'm not the first person to remark on this, but one of the interesting things about the Corbyn-Sanders phenomenon is that they're both pretty old. Like, they're not young people themselves, but young people came out um, for them so strongly. Um, And meanwhile, the sort of young candidates that um, have been thrown out by electoral politics in the Western world recently have been more people like Buttigieg, uh, Buttigieg, who, you know, made a lot of of, um, fuss about being a millennial, but, you know, is obviously really right wing. So I kind of wonder like what you make of that, like why young people are so, um, you know, we have all these ideals and these these politics, but that doesn't necessarily seem to translate into um, leaders of that generation. Oh, yeah, sorry, I was, I'll just throw in, yeah, I have a fascination with some of these like American candidates like Pete Buttigieg or like Beto O'Rourke, who was sort of designed by like a marketing committee to be like, Hey yeah, kids, exactly. you like this? And kids were like, "No, we don't. I don't get it." Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So against um, uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke or whatever, who was who was in a, a punk band apparently at one point. Um, yeah, he was. Yeah. <laughs> That's his claim to fame. Yeah, really disturbing to me that news. Um, but you know, against <laughs> him, you'd put somebody like you know Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, you know, and the Squad, and that you know that that the, those people who who are actually you know, who, who are at least to some degree linked to like this idea of millennial socialism, I think, you know, and the, the, the generation that's missing is actually my generation, a sort of generation X um, people. And, and I think like it really, it's some, something you were saying, Matt, about, um, about the expectations that we carried that the post-war period was the future of capitalism. And in fact, it wasn't, it was a it was a blip, basically. It seems it was the unusual period in capitalism, and now we seem to be returning to like the the norm to some degree, uh, the you know the pre that that period norm. Um, is that like, that leads us into this this other aspect of like of what you might term a generational politics? So so far, what I've told you, the story I've told you about this generational gap is it's nothing to do with generations. It's basically a form of class politics. Right. Which which it is. <laughs> it's a it's a particular sort of composition of class politics, you know, produced by historical circumstances and, and, and changes in, you know, in in um, in the economy, etc. But I do think there is a generational aspect which goes on top of that sort of like class aspect. And that generational aspect is that, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the picture we build up of the world, our early formative experiences build up a sort of picture of the world and how the world works. Um, and that does tend to be a bit sticky, right? You know, you can tend to carry that expectation of the world with us, despite the, the, the fact of the world changing uh, massively, right? And they can get out of kilter with the, with the, the way that the world works. And you can sort of see that in, in the sort of baby boomer generation is a sort of expectation of like, well, look, you know, I, 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 um, you know, when I when I was a young kid, you know, basically you could walk in one job from another. So why can't young people do that, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Yeah. So one of the 
Like the, the way I sort of like put put together my a concept of of generations is like you. I start from this. I this 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 basic fact of, um, uh, like basically my 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 book generation left is like it's more or less a conjunctural analysis. I'm trying to work out what's going on in the world, and like you start with one phenomenon, and it, and it some phenomena can unlock a lot about how what how the world works. So so you start from this like generational division in politics, and then you can see a lot you know about how the world is formed you know the most immediate way of thinking about that is that you know people's experiences in terms of their material lives their material prospects have divided along generational lines um but i think there's there's another aspect to that right and it uh, and well one way to, to do it is this right is that um like the, the idea that your material interests um guide your political beliefs Right, you know that is not a clear cut thing. Obviously, it's a very complex thing. And one way to understand that is that, like, we always have lots of potential material interests, right? And we tend to form uh, our political alignments around the material interests that seem to lead to a to a, 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 a positive future in some way. And so, like, your idea of a material interest is linked to the way that you understand how the world works and what the future may lead to. And I think there's been a generational rupture uh, amongst both, you know, the material interests of of young and old. So I think the material interests of older people have been basically been aligned in various ways to the financial sector. When the financial sector is doing well, their interests or immediate interests are being met. And that's not true of young people. Young people's interests are tied to wages, social spending, etc., which are basically in opposition to the interests of financial sector. Uh, beyond, but beyond that is like this picture of the future, and I think that you can sort of get into that by using a sort of a more classical generational analysis. And so, uh, you know, that yeah, the, the 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 classical generational analysis I use is from Karl Mannheim, who, who writes this really great essay in 1923 called "The Problem of Generations." And so, like Mannheim's idea is is we're used to this idea of generations as something that comes along every 20 years. So we've already used the words baby boomers, generation X, millennials, zoomers, generation Z, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and so for Mannheim, that's just like a basically a, a, a false idea of generations. You don't have just have a generation that comes along every 20 years. He says you might have, you might not have a political generation, you know, a generation with distinct political and social views. You may not have that for a hundred years. Or you may have, you know, several in a decade, because he says that like, his concept of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a generation is that like generational distinctions can only emerge when you have a period of really, really rapid change, basically. A period of rapid change uh, in which sort of like, you know, the, 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 the usual generational inheritance of like worldviews gets ruptured in some sort of way. And the way I do that, the way I sort of pass that is by 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 saying okay well let's think about Mannheim but like you know in critical theory there's a whole tradition of thinking about periods of very sudden change and it's like this theory of theories of the event uh, that people such as Badieu and you know uh, Gilles Deleuze and all these sorts of people Althusser, they've, they, you know there's a lot of theory about events so I sort of like put these two together and think about what, what comes out of it but there's there's sort of two elements to Mannheim's conception it's that is that like basically what i would the way i'd put it is that it's like these events 2008 is an event events you know cause these ruptures between generations but the second one the second element of his sort of theory generations is this idea that 
you know, we tend to form a sort of like a, an interpretive grid, a sort of picture of the world, a natural view of the world out of our own formative experiences. Uh, and so basically, he, he, in fact, Mannheim says that the that because of they because young people lack past experiences, they tend to be more open to what he calls fresh contract, fresh contact with with the new problems that an event produces. Basically, so you get closer to the event. Um, and so perhaps whereas older generations were interpreted in 2008 in terms of their expectations of, of how capitalism works, um, you know, formed in a post-war period, like that's that's not an option that's open as much to younger people. So they tend to like be able to grasp what's going on in this in this event at a certain point, if you know what I mean. And so that informs your idea of how the world is going to go in the future. Uh, and that, that means that, you know, that has an influence on how you see your material interests. Uh yeah, so that's the sort of broad sort of Mannheimian idea of what a generation is. And that's the way I sort of put generations together. And I so, so I think that helps us explain this idea <clears throat> of, um, yeah, why why older people and younger people seem to have almost incompatible conceptions of, of the state of the world, even, let <laughs> alone what the future that is, holds. Yeah, so that, that is something that really does interest me, the way that... Because, of course, we can kind of say, okay, like material interests, like class interests, um, young people and old people have conflicting ones, kind of obviously. But again, that kind of overlays onto this, well, like, yeah, there, there's this much broader question in my mind of like, okay, so what goes on in your head? Like, how does the world feel because of this? Because it's not just like when we say material interests, it's not just like, we're not just like sitting around, like counting our gold and being like, how can I maximize my gold intake? It's much more of like a, like a, I think for young people, it's often a kind of feeling of suffocation or stifling a sense of like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, where am I supposed to go? Like, I want to, like, you know, I want to claim something for myself or like, I want to start like building my projects and the sense that kind of wherever you turn, the sense like, um, very much the sense of you kind of hit a wall, the sense of like not being listened to. Um, and you talk about this kind of idea of, um, yeah, you have this idea that neoliberalism has moved into, I think you say it's a zombie phase, where it no longer even feels the need at all to justify itself to anyone. Um, I'm reading, and there's a, and yeah, there's a, um, a piece you quote called the new neoliberalism, which I'm just going to read a line from. Uh, it is a it's it is a new strain of political dissent that cannot simply be classed as critique. Rather, it is an expression of bewilderment that dominant forms of economic re regulation persist, apparently impervious to evidence, evaluation, or the merits of alternatives. Once critique is no longer even heard or recognized, critics may as well say anything. Um, he's sorry. He's should have contextualized that a bit better, but yeah, he's just talking about various kind of um, Yanis Varoufakis's critique of um, neoliberalism, basically what he was um, hearing, kind of various neoliberal bankers say, and he was saying, well, I could say anything to these people. I could offer them any line of argument. I could like I could put forward anything I said. I could you know, there's nothing, there's no kind of way around this. It's just met 
with this kind of iron wall of just blank incomprehension. Uh, as I, if, I may as well have been whistling the Swedish national anthem, I think he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one, yeah. So that's, um, yeah, he says, uh, there was point blank refusal to engage in economic arguments, point blank. You put forward an argument that you've really worked on to make sure it's logically coherent and you're just faced with blank stares. It is as if you hadn't spoken. What you say is independent of what they say. You might as well have sung the Swedish national anthem. Um, yeah, which I do have that there, but yes. Um, that is what kind of I feel so often is that what you say and what they say are independent. There's no connection between the sort of critiques of the existing system that are being uttered and the response you get. Um, is is that how you guys feel? Yeah, well, well, but I think there's a few things in there, right, that we need to sort of pick apart because I, I really like the way you say about, like, you know, you feel suffocated and, like, that's, a, that's this feeling of suffocation and, like, you know, there's nowhere to go for young people. And I think that is... You know, that's not, that is because there is nowhere to go. <laughs> it's suffocating. And the options open to young people, you know, are, are, are not what they were. And the young people have a huge amount less freedom than than was available in the sort of 1970s when we were talking about and I think cultural the stagnation. Issue of, Sorry, go on. The issue of climate change make, makes that all the more pressing. Like, I think, you know, in previous generations, there was, at least for a leftist, you might think, well, you know, the, the long arc of history will sort itself out. But here there's like a real kind of pressing material danger coming at us um, and the horizon's getting closer and closer. So I think that adds a whole new dimension to it. Yeah, I think climate change really complicates matters, I think, because um, because then, then then you're asking about what period, what period are we... So we, we've set up this story so far of, of um, neoliberalism burning through the public property uh, and the sort of growth that was developed by by sort of the Keynesian world in some sort of ways, but when we get to climate change, you know, and we think about uh, uh, you know fossil fuel use, you know, you'd you'd probably say, well, we'd have to include Keynesianism as this thing which was borrowing from future generations through burning fossil fuels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and for my sort of my my sort of framing, well, I'm sort of saying, well, yeah, it's events that cause generations. Like, climate change is a very strange sort of event. It's one that is happening now. It's going to get worse in the future. It's going to drag out, you know, it, we, you know, COVID in some ways is one of the events, the COVID pandemic is one of those precursor events, you know, caused by ecological devastation, you know, in which feels much more like an event um, than most of the events associated with climate, with climate change because it's sort of drawn out in, in such a long sort of way. Uh, even COVID, yeah, like COVID has that sense of very much like slowing time to a crawl. I think almost everyone said like it almost feels unreal. It feels like March was five months long and then September was two weeks long or whatever. There's this, yeah, like, and it kind of has this unreal sense of like not really happening. Yeah, no, there's mm. a big sense of unreality about it. I mean, that, that gets us, that can get us back into into the question you were posing, Matt, about, um, uh, you know, Varoufakis' experience of walking into the EU and, like, basically, this is not... A, this is a, an institution which is governed by ideology. It's not open to, to argument, basically. You know, I think that's one sort of framing um, or one sort of set of people who are... Who, for whom critique and, like, you know, looking at the world and saying, these are the problems, how are we going to solve it? 
you know that it's it, basically not open to that right it, it, you know but i think there's another set of people or another political tendency which is you know basically the boomer far right um who are who have got who've taken that to a much further extent really really left touch with any sort of basis in 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 fact you know it's basically they're it, it departed into a fantasy world and you know the whole covid um the whole covid anti-masking um you know conspiracy theories around vaccinations you know the the far right in the us has take off of these QAnon conspiracy theories this meta conspiracy theories what i've called the cosmic right actually in which sort of like wellness communities are suddenly getting into far right conspiracy theories and what's coming along with that actually is an increasing move towards you know um rejection of the idea of climate change you know I, it's 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 really strange when to get around and and you're quite right right to say that um you know if if I just say it's in, in in older people's material interests to vote for more more financialization, vote for whoever's going to keep on piling money into the finance and, and asset economy, basically, which is everybody so far, to be honest. Um, but like you know, the 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 people who voted for Brexit in the UK were overwhelmingly from older generation, younger generation voted against it. You know, uh, you know the far right has got a sort of this is almost a sort of like nihilistic sort of death drive uh dynamic going on in right-wing politics and that means old, old politics of older people at the moment which seems to cut against material interests it's quite hard to to, to sort of work out uh, you know and i think it is tied up with, with it's got to be tied up with ideology hasn't it basically the way i've been thinking about it more most recently is, a, is is around sort of ideas of freedom because the covid pandemic really puts our concepts of freedom into crisis you know, I'm not going to lie, you know, in the UK, it's been the left who has been demanding that the state restricts people's freedoms or that the, the, the state acts in order to allow people um, to not go to work in dangerous conditions, etc, etc, etc. And it's been the right who have been holding these sort of demonstrations demanding freedom. And, like you know, and the, some of those de demands for freedom are freedom not to wear a mask or not to, you know, not to have vaccinations or... Um, you know, not to be locked up and not, 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 you know, be able to, you know, ignore advice about social distancing and the, these sorts of things. The only way you can get at that is to, is to say that the left and the right are talking about completely different things when they're talking about freedom. We've got very different ideas of what freedom is and means. And I think there is a, you know, neoliberalism produces this idea of like a hyper individualized sense of freedom, right? Freedom, you know. Uh, freedom to me to, to, to do to do whatever I want to do. In fact, there are huge constraints on what you can do, but you can't see them in your immediate world. You know, it's like a market consumer's ch uh, idea of freedom gives you a certain level of agency, but only within predetermined limits. And you can't, as an individual, act to on those limits um, uh, to change them. You know, and and the the, the whole idea of like wearing a mask. Like that, not refusing to wear a mask might increase your individual freedom. Well, to wear a mask or not, it's not particularly great, <laughs> particularly a, a, a bit, big aspect of freedom. But of course, like if enough people do that, then the virus spreads and all of our freedom suffers massively, either through more intense lockdowns later on or through just runaway, runaway pandemic in which lots of people die, lots of people get very, very ill, etc., etc. You know, uh, it's the same with vaccinations. You know, vaccinations, they 
they really problematize a hyper-individualized notion of freedom. And you need to get to an idea of like, of the collective good, right? Which is not allowed in neoliberal. Well, um, have you considered that, have you considered that if Bill Gates injects a microchip with Jeffrey Epstein's DNA into your brain, uh, there's no freedom there because your brain is being controlled by a microchip. I welcome the microchip. Uh, at the moment, I have to. Yeah. I carry that microchip around with me in a phone in my pocket. It's quite bulky. Just inject it straight into my brain. It'll speed things up. <laughs> no, that is the thing that w winds me up about that idea that, um, <laughs> that the vaccinations are an excuse to inject a micro microchip so that they can monitor what we do. You're carrying a phone around. It, you have apps on it who are measuring everything you do. That data is going off and being sold. I mean, there's no point in injecting you with a chip. You, you've injected yourself. You've injected your pocket with that chip. Anyway, sorry. I must calm down. But that is what's so... Yeah. <laughs> that is what's so kind of conspicuous about, like, especially the vaccination stuff, is it's, like... You know, that's there's not, like, an attempt to kind of wrestle with this question. I mean, in theory, I don't think it should be hard for people to understand this concept of, like, oh, there's limits to anyone's freedom. Like, you don't have the freedom to just kill your neighbor with a gun, obviously. Like, and not even the loosest unit on the planet would be like, no, I have the freedom to, like, kill people. But there's definitely not like an attempt to kind of seriously wrangle with that on the part of these people. It's just like no, but I mean, it's just pure the, kind of yeah, yeah. No, but but that's the point. It's like you know, if you uh, have a really really embedded and uh, uh, this idea of freedom, a hyper individualized idea of freedom, is really uh, central to the way you see the world. And then you get a phenomenon that puts that into crisis, such as COVID, right? There are two ways you can deal with that. One way is to think, all oh, right, I need to sort of change the way I think about freedom. And like, to be honest, that's not something that we do very often. Or you have to try to eliminate the thing that puts that idea of freedom, that, that felt, that really lived idea of freedom. You have to eliminate the, the things that put that into doubt, basically. And so what do you do? You have to sort of say that they don't exist. So the pandemic does it. So the pandemic doesn't exist. Climate change puts this whole notion of individual freedom into doubt because that's going to constrain our freedom massively in the future. Uh, so what do you do? You, you basically did, you did deny that climate change exists. You know what I mean? A lot of our thinking is sort of incentivized in various ways. And in fact, you know, when we think about what, what what hegemony is, right? What, how do, the, how do the, the ideas of a certain time get into your head? You know, they operate by 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 a, a path of least resistance being constructed. So you know, as long as I, if I don't think about things and if I don't act on on thinking about those things and, and questioning them, I will tend to lead down this sort of life. I may not like it. I might like it. I might not like it. In sort of ways, it doesn't matter because the path of least resistance, like a river flowing downhill, will go in that way. At the moment, we're in this huge crisis of hegemony. Nobody's sure what's going on, and there are different paths being opened up for which that, that path of least resistance can go. Like, you know, there's sort of the, the river is forking in many different ways. For young people, you know, there's lots of the aspects of the life. I'm not really talking about young people, to be honest. It's like under 40s. In some sort of, in some sort of series, it's like under 50s, you know. Uh, but <laughs> let's just call it young people at the moment. Um, for young people, like the path of least resistance is leading to more socialistic ideas of like what freedom is, right? Because of the experiences of their lives. Because there's no way to get out like this asset economy thing unless the you know because that is a that is an ongoing dynamic. There's no way to get out of that 
unless if the world is reformed in, in a more egalitarian way. That, that's just the logic of the situation that you're faced with in this asset economy if you don't have assets and access to them. You know, the, the, but for older people, you know, there are paths being led, opened up, you know, towards uh, increasingly nihilistic, conspiratorial and fantasy economy. Like one, one of the ways I'd like to, I like to think about this is, um, let's go back to this idea that young people, all right, working age people even, right? Working age people who don't own assets are perhaps like under 40s, right? Uh, they exist in one economy. It's like, you could call it the real economy. It used to be called the real economy in which, you you know, you go to work and you get income from work and then you have to pay, you know, you, your material interests are based on like the, the cost of living, which is really, really bad at the moment. You know, all of these sorts of things. And there's measures, there's, there are indicators for that form of the economy. You know, GDP is not a great indicator, but that's one of the indicators you could look at. How is this economy performing at this moment? Let's look at GDP. So on the 12th of August um, this year, the UK uh, Office for National Statistics, they released data saying that the UK economy had, had shrunk by 20.4% over the last three months. Worst performance ever, right? That UK economy had never done that badly before. The same day, the FTSE 100, which measures the stock market, went up by 2%, right? And so there's this disconnect. Older people's interests are tied to the financial economy. The indicators coming out of the financial and real estate economy are that the world's doing okay. And this is not something, this like this is something that's never happened before where, the, where GDP shrinks and, G, and FTSE 100 goes up, right? But it's part of, that was the tendency before that, like this, there was an increasing disconnect between like the, before that, like this, there was an increasing disconnect between like the indicators that come, the real economy, if you want to put it that way. So the, the eyes of people who are working age and don't own assets, their eyes are drawn to these indicators coming out of the real economy. And they say, just look at the state of the world. We're in a really serious crisis. If you're, you know, the, the eyes and the focus and the attention of like older asset owners is drawn to this other, these other indicators. And they're telling you the world's great, you know. Uh, this was really prevalent before, particularly in the US. You know, the, the real answer to why why this sort of like, why the stock market is just completely disconnected to the to the underlying... Well, the stock market, the performance of the stock market is, is, seems to be more or less completely unrelated to the performance of the... or the expectations of the performance of the companies whose stock you're buying, right? It's just this disconnect. It's mad. And the reason for that is because... You know, stock markets at the moment seem to be just indicators or sort of trying to measure expectations that governments will still will keep, you know, doing quantitative easing and all these other forms of huge, huge support. All of that money from quantitative easing, it flows straight into asset ownership, props assets ownerships that props, props stock prices up. So, like, that's one really obvious way that, like, there is not one world. <laughs> yeah, like... No, go on, please. It really, really interests me the idea that the kind of cosmic right and the um, QAnon and your kind of new realm of conspiracy theories that seem so kind of distant from any real tangible thing that can't be approached from any kind of, um, you know, grounded way are uh, related to this kind of disconnect of the financial economy from the material world and from the world of work and wages that there's this kind of ghost economy which is vastly larger than the real economy where like we have to live and that our kind of realm of ideas like the sort of world of like ghost ideas like ideas that don't have any that are just purely a kind of postmodern play 
Were you just kind of having fun and just kind of online connecting things together at random and telling yourself a fun little story? And there's no kind of suggestion that like you should actually try and prove this correct in any way? Um, that these are kind of the same thing? Um, and yeah, like it, it seems like there's this kind of massive and getting worse um, obscuring of the relationship between labor and value, basically, like of the, you know, the, the fact that uh, labor is in fact the source of all value, the fact that ultimately like money is not real, it's just like a thing we use to exchange commodities, it's a thing that we use to like uh, purchase people's labor with. It seems that the kind of asset owning class, kind of older people, increasingly uh, seems not a matter of concern that like someone actually has to do the work. Like it seems like they're, we're all just kind of taking for granted that money just comes from nowhere. Like the stock market's going up because we just take for granted that, yeah, like the profit that a company makes, it's not like based on selling a product or it's not based on extracting the value of someone's labor. It's literally, it's just magic money from the air. And that seems like it's not going to last, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, ultimately the ultimately the real economy, I don't quite like reusing those, but I like the idea that there's a real economy and a fantasy economy is sort of useful rhetorically at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, the real economy will catch up. Um, I mean, yeah, will catch up and, you know, cause all sorts of problems. You know, before the pandemic, you know, the economy was already going. If you remember, like the stock market crashed because of the, of an oil shock, you know, two days before lockdown started around the world or, or in the UK <laughs> at any rate. Um, but I think like basically one of the ways we could get into this is that like like one of the one of the things that, that neoliberalism is based around is the idea that like you need to devalue the knowledge of experts. Right. And in fact, the only source of like of, of knowledge production, which is which is like um, reliable and in fact, morally good is like the, the, the information that comes out of markets. If you think about markets as as um, as information processors. Right. And, and this is just a long term trend to devalue expertise because expertise is not based on like, you know, uh, the, 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 the coordination mechanism of a market, etc. And, like you know, that that ends up with in very different places at the moment. You know, for those who, who, are, who are sort of like who are not going to reject the basic neoliberal worldview, but need to take into account all of these you know, really, really quite uh, uh, um shocking events that have happened you know over the last five years or whatever event after event which was not like but not supposed to happen you know you basically you you know for young people i think that's causing it like this this almost like a crisis subjective crisis if you like in that like you know basically they've been tra we've all been trained to, to view the world in a particular way so we're individuals in competition with everybody else you know and and you know all of the institutions that we interact with they've sort of been reformed to, tr to try to mirror markets etc to have like pseudo markets in them so that we are forced into a competitive competitive sort of inter uh, relations with, uh, with other people you know that and that sort of has an effect on the way you see the world that's what it's there for that's why that's why you know, you have fees for universities introduced, etc. That's why you have market mechanisms introduced into hospitals and into universities. It's, you know, not for efficiency. It's for training people to view the world in a certain way. 
for young people, you know, there, there's all sorts of things pulling against that, right? And the, and the sort of the idea that that this sort of you know by by just following the rules, etc., by branding myself, you know, that's going to lead to a to a, a nice life. You know, that seems less and less likely, and it comes into real conflict with this real knowledge about the asset economy that like there's no meritocracy because my life is dependent on whether I can inherit assets or not. Right, so that's one way in which that you know that that worldview is going into crisis. You know, in on, in the other hand, that you know, amongst older people, that world is going into crisis by just doubling down on this rejection of of expertise, right? And the basically whatever, you know, whatever becomes popular is basically truth, basically because the markets worked. You know, QAnon is true; it must be true because you know lots and lots of people are getting into it. Uh, you know, the, the uh, and and what you know, how do you how do you inter, inter, intervene into that into that sphere? You know, it probably you know, like reason has a plays a role in it. There's no doubt about it. But you know, there's also other stuff going on which we probably have to attend to as well. So with QAnon in particular, QAnon is this ma- massive meta conspiracy. You know, uh, which in which is sort of like a game actually. It's sort of like a role playing game, or perhaps like an alternative reality game in which you have these little nuggets that get dropped and you have to sort of join in the game of like putting together how the conspiracy fits together and it's constantly changing and you've got so it's a, a lot of people it's sort of like you know it has a lot of the attractions of playing a game right and in fact you know those sort of conspiracy theories can actually perhaps they can enchant they can re-enchant a world which is probably quite mundane you know a world in which there are like cabals of vampire satan worshippers um, and then there is a heroic band of young people not, not young people many old people <laughs> middle-aged people the heroic band of people who are going to go and you know defeat the evil cabal you know that's a sort of you know it's a little bit of a romantic view of the world do you know what I mean? uh, and you have to sort yeah. of defeat it on that level as well you know you have to sort of invent i think you have to invent sort of game gamified aspects of left activism but ones which lead back to the project of collective reason i think yeah well you've answered it we recently did a a podcast on conspiracy theories which i think you also covered recently um on acfm and um yeah that was kind of one of the questions we came up against like how do you bring someone back over (laughs) like if you know if i think all of us here in the queensland greens do a lot of political door knocking Mm. um and we were like, what would you do if you door knocked someone who was a QAnon believer? And there's definitely like something there because they're not wrong about the state of the world in a way. Like things are incredibly broken. And, you know, if there's, there is like an elite cabal of people who, who run the world at the expense of everyone else and protect their own interests and do horrendous things to defend those interests. But obviously it's got so twisted. Um so yeah, I really like the idea of gamifying it, of, of um, bringing some enchantment back into politics. Um, I wanted to ask you, maybe as one of our last questions, um, about so your book, um, and I'm kind of quoting from the from the copy here, uh, traces two international waves of development: the protest wave of 2011 and the electoral turn in the years that followed. And this is about um, Generation Left, or you know, the the younger people, the under 40s, who are turning left in a big way. Um, and it says, at first glance, these waves seem contradictory, but the continuities show a generation in continuing development. So I wanted to know if you can talk a little more about how this, you know, how this protest wave relates to the electoral turn and also where you see that going in future now that obviously there's been big, two big defeats of Corbyn and Sanders in the last year or so. 
um, yeah, what what do you see as the next step for Generation Left? Yeah, so so I uh, I should fill out my sort of little conceptual assemblage in the in the book, I suppose. Cause, so I've already said that like events cause or produce the conditions about from which generations can emerge. And I I said two thousand and eight was an event, um, but in a way like that's that's what that's this sort of event that you, that seems to happen to us. Right, in which we don't seem to have any agency over. Of course, like, you know, economic crashes are basically just, you know, fetishized human relations. You know, it is actually people doing it, but it's at a level where we can't seem to get to. Um, and so, you know, they, those tend not to lead necessarily immediately, you know, those sorts of those sort of like economic crashes. It doesn't necessarily lead to a sort of left wing um, direction to a, to a sort of generational distinction, to a, to, a, to a new generation that merges in regard to the problems that that event produces you need other sorts of events i've called these events moments of excess moments in which you know our subjectivities get exceeded by new possibilities rather than than possibilities seeming to close down and i think like the the sort of protest wave of 2011 is it was 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 that it was an international wave you know the whole occupy thing 15m in 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 spain etc you know, it was a wave, it was like a classic wave, international protest wave in which the same sort of forms emerge in lots of different places, you know, and they, they emerge because they're trying to deal with the same sorts of, same sorts of problems, do you know what I mean? But, you know, uh, in the book, actually, I sort of trace how, um, uh, how um, we, when, 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 when events, when events happen, like these big political events or like revolutionary events happen, for instance, you know, what tends to happen is that it takes a while for us to be able to get at what's new in them. We tend to treat them as old events. So that's what Marx says in, in the 18th Brumaire. You know, he says, uh, you know, it's as though history happens twice, first time as tragedy, second time as farce, you know. And so what, 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 what he's meaning by that is that, like, you know, the way we get to get to what's new in an event is we have to sort of like, you know, we only have to, we have to do it by dressing up in the in the the close of past revolutionaries, he says. And so he's talking about like, you know, in 18, 1848 revolutionary wave around Europe, you know, people sort of interpret it through the sort of the French Revolution, uh, the, the, the the sort of forms that came in the French Revolution. And in fact, when we see in 2011, we see what what what, what happens is that, that, that a lot of the forms that get adopted in 2011 around the world consensus decision making these sort of protest camps in city centers etc they were the thing that got developed in the previous cycle of struggles around the anti-globalization movement etc then in the uk that went into the sort of climate justice movement and, and so basically people went and tried out these new things they tried to to express the new problems through these older slightly older forms and like basically quite quickly reached the sort of limits of those those forms i think um which is why when that protest wave died away and then right around the world people were, were looking to try and work out you know well what you know if 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 a, if a pure rejection of politics you know sort of anti-political aspect you know uh if that can't get us there well where are the levers of power where can how can we operate power and, and it, there was a turn towards you know is it possible to express this through um through electoral politics um and you know uh, i was absolutely surprised how how close, you know, uh, in the UK and the US, that this left came from nowhere uh, and almost, you know, gained power. Well, actually, no, they almost became the government. You know, it wasn't unfeasible that they could become the government of the UK and the US, right? 
The problem was they probably wouldn't have had power then either, even if they were the government. If Corbyn had been elected in 2017, 2017, as was possible, actually, he would have been defeated probably. Because there's a lot of other, other, other ways in which you can engineer crises, as we saw in Greece, etc., etc. Um, uh, so where, where next? Like uh, um, Now I think there'll be a shift back. I think like electoral politics is still going to be playing a role. But basically, particularly in the UK, people are thinking, you know, this was a, this is an all or nothing gamble that we just, just chucked into like trying to gain governmental power, and in fact we didn't build up like the social movement power. We didn't build up you know the the sort of the power in the economy, the power to bring business as usual to a stop, basically, which is like the strike and other forms of of being able to exercise power in that realm of the economy. You know, all of these other elements are, are the things that need to be built up, basically. I you know if you want to pursue the electoral uh, electoral politics again in the future you're going to have to build those up first in order to overcome all of these obstacles that are put in the way um so i think that's what what generation left will do but of course you know now we have a new generation with their own crisis covid this huge uh, economic depression which would be which is now underway and will uh, uh, will take effect over the next 10 years so then we have to think about well what about this new generation who 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 for whom this COVID pandemic and the crisis they're emerging into is, is their, their formative experiences. You know, how will that generation left from 2010 onwards, how will they relate to this new crisis? Probably not by embracing centrism. And how will um, generation, this, you know, the Zoomer gener generation Z or, you know, young people who, who for whom they're now emerging into adulthood in a situation of like pandemic, climate change and uh, uh, an economic depression. I mean, I'd be very, very surprised if that generation says, "Right, great, we're gonna we're gonna move towards sort of like centrism, centre right, centre left, neoliberal politics," because that offers absolutely no solutions to the to to to, to the world's problems. Basically, this is basically no way, no no solutions to that. So, you know, I imagine what's going to happen is that you that that generation is going to form, you know, either subsume or be subsumed into all this wider generation left. Uh, you know, and so there are two generations actually. There are two sort of like generations which, which uh, that that ge nascent left generation has to overcome. The first one, the one that defeated them, the, the Corbyn and Sanders, is the sort of like Generation X centrist. I never answered your question about why, <laughs> why Corbyn and Sanders is old people, um, and, and basically the answer to that is that there was a whole generation whose formative experience was the fall of the Berlin Wall. And the great doubling of the labour force that happened after that, in which the power of labour massively... So basically, the, the, the labour force available to capital doubles over two years, from like 1990 to 1992. If you double the supply of anything, you know, the, 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 the price of that falls. Labour were in a very weak position globally. The Soviet Union falls. The left gets defeated. And the politics of people who emerged at that time, or the, the mainstream of politics, was that change is not possible. Uh, so you have to just sort of like accept the coordinates of like a neoliberal globalized world, um, financialized world, and then just see if you can just get a bit of money off the top to, to, to alleviate poverty. That's third way politics. And the generation whose, whose sensibilities were formed in that period were the generation that defeated Corbynism, basically, <laughs> and Sandersism. Um, and, and that just creates a space for this older, more more radically right wing generation 
<laughs> to, to pursue its nihilistic ends, basically. So that's going to have to change. You know, I, you know, one of the tasks is to persuade at least some of this generation, X generation, this centrist generation, that like you know that way leads to utter, utter, utter disaster. And you know, and then you know, yeah, what what do we do about this? How do we how do we persuade people? Uh, uh, persuade the older generation? I don't know. You know, that's a big, big, big task. Yeah, that kind of seems like, because I think kind of now in the immediate term, um, you actually will kind of see a swing back to this kind of third way politics where it's just like, well, we're sick of ideology and we just want someone sensible. And that's obviously what Joe Biden and um, Keir Starmer kind of stand for. And, um, you know, it's looking uh, Joe Biden's looking kind of uh, worse and worse as a prospect, but like he still could win his election. And then I think you'll get into this very kind of a weird phase where like there'll be this kind of Gen X, I guess, declaration that like, and all the problems have been solved. We beat the bad guys and it's done. And that'll, yeah, that'll have an influence over this kind of emerging new COVID generation as well. Like that'll be part of what kind of sets the stage there there'll be this kind of continuing attempt to um just kind of go on with um just kind of pretend like oh like trump's gone oh everything can continue as normal now like the crisis is over which is just another Um, example of the kind of abstraction we've been talking about throughout the show right the the way that this rhetoric is completely disconnected from you know the material reality on the ground for most people and certainly most people under 40 the problem is that the problem is that the material reality is the materiality of like absolutely huge crises are going to over overwhelm these sort of like political dynamic the political swing dynamics i think like we, we really are looking at like an economic depression of the size of the 1930s perhaps bigger we don't know how it's going to go because there's a pandemic triggered uh, recession uh, uh, depression but like, you know, that and then climate change, the effects of climate change, you know, more and more and more obvious. I, like the, the politics of that centre left or even centre right, it doesn't really matter. That politics of that centrism, like it is so out of time with the with 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 the present world. You know, it's so attuned to a world which is so, so gone. Like, you know, it, I mean, that that is the real worry is that basically what you get is you get you get. um uh, Biden wins, which I think he probably will. Actually, I mean, he like Hillary Clinton was the absolute worst candidate you could possibly put forward. Uh, like Biden's pretty from, not far behind. They're not campaigning like so. The Trump campaign knocks on something like I don't know if it's a million doors a week, but like the Biden campaign knocks on zero doors a mm, week. Yeah, like you can't get a Biden yard sign. Yeah, you just can't do it, and all of that stuff. Yeah, but even if Biden does win. The, 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 then you're in a sort of like Macron Le Pen situation in France, where you know you have like the the, the two options are failed centrist neoliberalism, or f- you know far right hyper nihilist neoliberalism. <laughs> uh, like that's not a good situation to be in. You, you, that, that, you know that that's the that's the situation that needs to be interrupted somehow. Uh, yeah. God, I, I meant to end. I meant to move us towards a more optimistic <laughs> perspective. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if that would be true to life, though. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm genuinely am optimistic over a longer period of time, in that I, 
What makes me optimistic, uh, just to double back to the very beginning of the episode, is the fact that among people under 25, uh, the coalition gets 15% of the vote. That does genuinely make me me optimistic. Like, I don't think that means a lot for us now. Like, I don't think that that's ultimately the smallest and weakest um, portion of the electorate. But it is also the only portion of the electorate that's going to be around for another 50 years. And if we kind of do think that that will be a, like, that will be consistent, like the experiences that happen now and like those kind of, not just voting patterns, but like the world view of that generation does remain consistent uh, and is what will be shaping the world 20, 30, 50 years from now. I do think there is cause for hope in that. I mean, yeah, the problem with that is the problem with that is climate change. <laughs> but like, let, oh well, oh obviously, yeah. But let's yeah. let's end on optimism. <laughs> is that like, um, you know, at the moment there was this horrible, ironic historical twist that like both Corbyn and Sanders get defeated, you know, mere weeks before COVID comes along, and like, you know, the, uh, a lot of the things that they were gesturing towards become, you know, absolutely overwhelmingly obvious that you'd need sort of you know, basically health protections, health care, sick right, you know, um, rights to sick leave at work, all these things become very obvious that you need them very, very, very immediately. But like what happens, you know, more or less at the same time, just after that, you get the Black Lives Matter movement reemerging. Like, and in America, that is the biggest social movement that's ever, ever happened. It just absolutely huge, reached into tiny, t- small towns, reached to young whites in tiny, in small, small towns, um, and shifted uh, uh, attitudes so f- massively fundamentally around things such as defund the police, something which is basically a police abolitionist <clears throat> direction, something which which you couldn't have predicted before that that, that sort of change in attitude had happened so quickly. Obviously, we're seeing that the the reaction to that now, and that reaction is <clears throat> worrying and military and fascist, etc. But you know that 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 still, you know, events like that can happen. Right. And like, you know, so we think we're set into a that's what an event is. We think we're on a path of history. We think that we've that the left has been defeated, et cetera, et cetera. But then you have an event, you know, event happens. They don't come out of nowhere. They they build and build and build. And it's people organizing to do them. But like change can happen very, very quickly, basically. And, and the conditions are change or die, basically. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, that's I think where um, the hope lies. Yeah, I think we, we might have quoted used this quote on the show before, but I think it was Walter Benjamin who said, all decisive blows are struck left-handed. So, you know, definitely don't give up. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, that it might be a good place to end it. Uh, well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Kier. It was a great, great discussion. Um, where can our listeners find more of your work? Um, <clears throat> I'm on, on Twitter as at Keir Milburn, uh, K-E-I-R-M-I-L-B-U-R-N. Um, uh, you can buy my book Generation Left uh, and you could listen to ACFM which comes out on Navara Media uh, yeah that's 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 me yeah great alright well thanks again and um, yeah thank yeah. you so much Kiel that was a really lovely conversation yeah I really enjoyed that it was great great yeah. alright bye